Lord, we're thankful for this night. We're thankful that uh, just in the middle of a week, which is likely a crazy week for a lot of people, uh, that we can stop and uh, go to the Word uh, and be encouraged, uh, be admonished, be helped, um, be informed, be warned. Um, we are thankful for a Word that is, that is alive, and that isn't just historical, uh, that is sharp, and that is not dull. Um, and we are uh, we're eager to be um, transformed tonight by by it, so that we would be glorifying and honoring to you. Um, in our time in First Second Chronicles, we pray that you would allow us to um, to understand, particularly tonight, what it is that we sing when we come to you, as we look at the tabernacle and that first song that was offered to you. Uh, we are thankful uh, for the rain that's fallen outside, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple of details I meant to share before I prayed, but I didn't. Uh, this year, this this year is our tenth year at Crosspoint, so we're having our big ten year anniversary on Sunday, and so a uh, little bit different. Everyone will be in here, no no childcare whatsoever. So even your your little children uh, will be in here with you, and so we're going to have it set up. It'll be a little bit different. Ben is preaching a sermonette, not a sermon, from Psalm nine, and uh, and we'll have hopefully a really sweet time in worship. Uh, the Lord has blessed us, I mean, immensely over the last 10 years. And so we have a lot to recount, and that's what Psalm 9 is about. And we have a lot to go to him and thank him for, and to make sure that his deeds are, are made known uh, to others. And so that's going to be the focus of our time. So y'all come ready for that uh, on Sunday morning. As well, um, Ashley Hall is having surgery tomorrow. A lot of y'all know about that. Um, Tiffany is sending out an email, some of y'all may have already gotten it, uh, to the body about um, prayer slots for different things to be praying for at different times. It's like a 10-hour procedure, and so we're wanting to try to have someone praying, you know, the whole time. Not one person praying the whole time, but people praying the whole time. So um, y- y'all pay attention to that as, as it comes through on email. Um, <clears throat> we are talking about what we sing tonight, First and Second Chronicles. Uh, I said turn to First Chronicles 28 before we get there. What's the main difference between the Mosaic Tabernacle and the Davidic Tabernacle? Mosaic Tabernacle and the Davidic Tabernacle. There was a big difference between the two of them. What was that? Sorry? The sound of it. How did the sound of the two differ? How did it differ? What was the difference? Anybody? Yeah, that was good. I like how you keyed in on that key. Um, see what I did there? Did you see what I did there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, way to go. Um, yeah, th- there was singing in the Davidic tabernacle where there was not singing in the Mosaic tabernacle because of the way the sacrifices were offered. Um, why do we sing? We come together every Sunday. Generally, we sing and we listen to a preached word. And then we go and be doers of the word. So why do we sing? God likes it. That's a great answer. If God didn't like it, it would not be a good idea to do such a thing. But it is pleasing to him, and he is the one who said, y'all will sing now. What does it mean to bring a sacrifice of praise from last week that we looked at? What's it mean to bring a sacrifice of praise? It's very good churchy, Christian-y language. What does it mean? Wholehearted worship? Wholehearted worship? 
Why is it called a sacrifice? Okay. It cost us something. What? Oh, so it's fresh. That's good. That's good. Flattery will get you nowhere. So why, why don't we bring goats to worship anymore? I'll settle for the Sunday school answer on this one if y'all want. Jesus, yeah, yeah, we don't bring goats to sacrifice anymore because Christ was sacrificed. So we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 19, it says this. David has given a charge to Israel, and now David is giving a charge to his son Solomon about... Um, what it's supposed to look like, why they're doing what they're doing, what the tabernacle is, how they will go about the tabernacle duties, the Levitical duties, all those different things. And in 28:19 it says, "All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan." What that means is that whatever David has said, whatever's been included in First and Second Chronicles and other areas as well, about the tabernacle and about how God's people worship God. Whatever David shares, he's sharing what God has shown him. What's been written has been written really by the hand of God. So we don't just look at this and say, man, Dave, I guess David had, was the first one to have the idea for us to sing. No, God was the one who had the idea for us to sing, and he communicated that through David. And that has to be clear as we, as we start this, because if we're off base on, on who said it and why we're doing it, um, we could be unclear in our worship, potentially half-hearted and, and not understanding why we would come together and sing now. It was God's idea that he communicated through David. And 2819 is an important verse as we're studying First and Second Chronicles right now to make sure we understand this came from the hand of the Lord. It wasn't just David's idea. He wasn't just tired of all the bloodshed from the animals. He, he heard from the Lord, and now they're bringing a sacrifice of praise. Um, First Chronicles 2819 indicates that all that David revealed was indicated to him by God in writing. So rather, singing as a part of worship being David's idea, it was God's, and a transition was being made where God showed it to be his desire that his people worship him in song, exactly like your answer earlier. Why do we sing? It's God's desire that we sing. And we must not miss this immediate connection to Jesus that we touched on just briefly. <coughs> the connection to Jesus. Rather than presenting an animal for offering, we gather and present ourselves. Uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So our worship is not just song, but when we gather for song, we present ourselves to the Lord. We don't have to bring an animal uh, with us. Bring goats to worship. If the power goes out, don't worry about it. Are all of our surge protectors on? Because it's going to... Um, uh, no, no, if you'll leave them on, that'd be fantastic. Um, um, rather than presenting an animal for offering, um, we don't have to because Christ was our final sacrifice. When you, you need to be mindful of that when you sing. We're talking tonight about what we sing. Last week we talked about why we sing. The, every time you open your mouth to, to say to God in song how wonderful he is or to recount his deeds, it's because Jesus was your final sacrifice. You don't have to, to do it the way they did in, in the Old Testament tabernacle. And so that's, that's significant because that means when we start singing, our minds should immediately go to Jesus. 
and the sacrifice that he made so that you could have access to the Lord and to have salvation and to have freedom from your sin and forgiveness of your sin. Um, there's no longer a need for an animal to be brought with you to worship, which we're all thankful for. Um, we gather in Christ, we claim the name of Christ, we confess our sins, and we know that because of Christ, we are forgiven and released from our guilt. And rather than the smoke of the sacrifice ascending to the Lord, and its aroma pleasing to him, as it says in the Old Testament, we ascend to God in praises. And our sacrifice of praise is pleasing to him. We understand our song in light of sacrifice, and what we now bring to God is what we call a sacrifice of praise. So who are the Levites? Anyone remember? We studied Exodus for a long time. The priests, okay? Why, why were the Levites maybe different from the rest of the Israelites? What, what were they supposed to be doing? They didn't own any property, that's right. And why was it okay for them not to own property? Yeah. Exactly. The supply that they needed was supplied through the tabernacle. And so that, that was what their life revolved around. And they, they had different responsibilities throughout the tabernacle. Um, the sacrifices would be brought. They would offer them. They, remember all the different altar, the golden altar and the, remember the holy place and all these different things that were in the tabernacle courts, uh, the temple courts um, that we studied. The Levitical priesthood were the guys who carried that out. And so while that was happening, there were also Levitical priests who would go out and teach so it wasn't just come here and confess to us, but we want to take what we hear from God and then go out to the tribes and make sure that you guys understand it. It's almost like a small group shepherd would be for us today, where you, know, you hear something on Sunday and then you go and you meet on you know, Tuesday night or Thursday night or whatever, and a small group shepherd is, is there to, to help you understand. I'm not making a direct comparison of Levitical priesthood to small group shepherds, but I don't want anyone to get a big head, but there was a, there's a similarity there. So last week... The first thing that we established um, is that our song is all about God. That's why we sing. One of the requirements of the earliest Levitical worshipers, according to 2 Chronicles 30, you don't have to turn there, um, but in 2 Chronicles 30, the guys who would lead worship, this, this Levitical choir, um, a requirement that was placed on their life was that Le the Levitical song leaders had a good understanding of Yahweh. This is very significant. It's not okay to be a worship leader if you don't have a good understanding of Yahweh. <clears throat> we understand why we sing. Tonight we're going to look at what we sing. And the content and the aim of our song is important because it takes thought and it takes understanding. Um, this should be convicting to us. I want you to listen to this warning from Amos 5. Um, you can turn there with me if you'd like. If you're a Bible drill person and you're like, I got this. Um, you can turn there. But Amos 5, there's a warning of what's going on at a certain point in Israel's history. In 21 through 24, it says this, Amos 5, 21 through 24. This is the Lord speaking to his people. And he says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. <laughs> take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What were they doing? What was going on in those verses? What were they actually doing? They were going through the motions, but what motions were they actually going through? 
I want you all to see that they were still having solemn assemblies, not just assemblies even, but solemn assemblies. They were still gathering in a manner that was solemn. They were offering sacrifices. They were exactly as you said. They were going through the motions. The only reason that God would say, I hate and I despise your feasts, some people might say, well, at least they're having feasts. No, it wasn't for their Lord. It was for their own benefit, for their own purpose, for their own um, things that they liked to, to meet what they thought that they wanted. I take note of light in your solemn assemblies. It doesn't matter that they're solemn. That's not enough. Even though you, they're offering burnt offerings, they're offering grain offerings. And he says, even though you do that, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. They're singing. And he says, take away from me the noise of your songs. Do you see what's going on there? They're doing everything the people of God are supposed to be doing. They're just not doing it the right way. They're gathering. It is an assembly. Everyone is there. It is solemn. They've all brought their offerings according to what the law says. They have all brought their, their singing going on at this point because there's overlap between these ta- the, the tabernacle um, details. But God's not pleased with it. God's not pleased with it at all. What we're seeing here is this. The problem in Amos' time was that Israel was populated with... Um, uh, Peter Lightheart says it like this. He says, Israel was populated with would-be Davidic musicians who had David's aesthetic tastes but wholly lacked his passion for righteousness. They had David's aesthetic tastes. We're going to do this up. We're going to have a solemn assembly. We're going to offer everything at the right time. We're going to sing the right thing. Our transitions will be smooth. PowerPoint will have no glitches. The smoke machine will activate at the right time. But they did not have the, the, the eagerness and, the, and the, the, uh, the desire, the taste um, and passion for righteousness that they should have had. So all, all you would have to do is try to imagine uh, a culture inundated, inundated with theologically illiterate would-be worship leaders. Try to imagine a culture full of theologically illiterate would-be worship leaders, and that's what it looked like in Amos' time. That's what they were talking about. Um, I'm going to share a quote from the... Uh, theologian uh, Hank Hill. Um, are you all familiar with Hank Hill, Dr. Hank Hill? Um, he, his, his son has run off with a Christian band to, to travel the world and save everyone for Jesus, and the leader of the band is addressing the dad because he clearly doesn't understand his son's passion and how you know, the Spirit's moving him to, to come and go with the band. And Hank uh, looks at the leader of the band, and he says, Boy, you're not making Christian music better you're making rock music worse. And uh, I think he, had, he was probably reading Amos 5 when he said that. He, he saw that there was this aesthetic taste. It was similar to David's, but he saw that their passion for righteousness was completely lacking. And I, I think that's why he said it. Um, probably one of the best quotes on modern day worship I've ever heard in my life. So it's not enough to simply want the music and worship to sound great, though great sound is important. But there must be a passion for righteousness. And the only possible way for one to have that passion is to do what it says in 2 Chronicles 13 and to have an understanding of Yahweh. To make sure that we're not being vague about familiar terms, what does it mean to have a passion for righteousness? What does it mean to have a passion for righteousness? Yes, love truth, seek justice, meet people's needs rather than trampling on them. Okay, we should be convicted at this point. What else does it mean to, to have a passion for righteousness? 
Yeah. It's not just knowing of him. It's knowing him. It's understanding him. It's, it's, it's getting what he is about, knowing his character, and seeking to reflect him as an image bearer. I mean, we're, when we're talking about righteousness here, it, and that's actually what I just said isn't even enough, because for us, Christ is your righteousness. It's Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. And so um, I want to make sure that we're not just being vague about familiar terms, but we're talking about a passion to understand God, to know Yahweh, to, to desire righteousness. Um, that's what should be like front and center as we sing to the Lord, as we worship in song. Um, so what we're singing when we come before God um, is a sacrifice of praise, and it's not only symbolic, um, something's actually happening. A, a lot of times we think in these symbolic terms like, okay, if we do this during our worship time, it's symbolic of this. Or we'll say, we'll take the supper, and it's symbolic of you know the last supper in the upper room. Or we'll sing, and it's symbolic of those who sang before us. Or you see what I'm saying? Like, it's not just symbolic. We're actually doing something. There's something happening when we sing. Uh, what is the content of our song, both lyrically and spiritually, is what I want to look at right now. When we come together on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night and we sing, I want to look at the content both spiritually and lyrically. So turn to First Chronicles 16. And we're going to walk through this song. Remember, this is the first song that was offered in the Davidic tabernacle, the first song that would be offered in the presence of the ark, which is significant of the presence of God. So this is David's song of thanks, and we're going to start in verse 7. Before I read through this, I want us to, know, to see that what we sing and how we sing it is hugely important. That's kind of the main point of our study tonight. What we sing and how we sing is hugely important. If we're singing songs that are off base with what it means to know Yahweh, and maybe it just is a, a cool notion, something that kind of warms your heart, but maybe has nothing to do with Jesus... It's lacking in what God would call you to in your worship and song, no matter how wholeheartedly you're singing those words. The content matters. On the flip side of the same coin, you can't just say, well, the content's good, so I'll just kind of sing like this, holy, 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 Lord, how do I And you get, it's like you're bored with the knowledge of Yahweh. We're not to be bored with the knowledge of Yahweh. We're to be passionate about it, and we're to be eager to proclaim it loudly so that we're reminded of it, and then so that others hear it. Um, Another thing is that it's not mood music. It's not entry music. This is something that I want to remind the church of as much as we can. On Sunday morning, it's really easy to be like, well, the sermon hadn't started yet, so let's, let's do, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll go ahead and stop and get donuts or whatever. Not that anyone would ever do that, but um, it's not mood music. It's not entry music. It's not just sort of a precursor to the sermon. There's something happening when we worship in song that is significant, and it's significant because God made it, made it significant. The first song that was ever sung before the ark is what we're about to look at, and it's representative of the way that we're called to worship um, God in song today. Look at verse 8. Verse 7 says, Then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And why would David appoint such a thing? Because the Lord told him in writing to do so. Remember, that's where we started tonight. Then we go to verse 8. The content of our song. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. We thank the Lord that he's present when we gather. And we thank the Lord that his presence is a blessing to us, not just a means to another blessing. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm glad the Lord's near. Maybe he'll help me with this. And we miss sight of the fact that the Lord is near. He is present he, he, he's enthroned upon the praises of his people. And so we thank him that he's present and he's, um, his presence is a blessing to us, not just means to another blessing. Remember Exodus 20, 24. God causes us to remember his name 
And upon doing so, he is present and he's blessing us. So it's not just symbolic. When we just sang, before we opened up the word, we sang to the Lord. And when we do that, it's not just symbolic, but it's as real as real gets. And, and he's, he's, it says, when he causes us to remember his name, he's present with us. So we call upon his name. And it says we make known his deeds. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. This is the part that really opens up the content of our song. If we're looking at, we're Christian people, we sing, what do we sing? This is where the content of your song is really the gates are flung wide open. Because God has done an immeasurable amount of amazing deeds throughout the course of time. He has conquered and shattered. He's forgiven and redeemed. He's healed and even brought dead people back to life. As his deeds continue, we sing about it and we write songs about it. At the end of 1 Chronicles, Hezekiah, who was considered one of the good kings, Ben mentioned him Sunday, and when we say good king, we put it in quotes because none of them were all that great. The king of kings has it significant from the lack of greatness in the earthly kings that Israel had. But Hezekiah was actually considered one of the good kings, and at the end of 1 Chronicles, he canonizes all that David and Asaph had written to be a part of our course corporate worship and song. He canonized what David and Asaph had written, and a lot of what they wrote was included in the Psalms. Well, throughout the Psalms, they wrote about what God did, and they included many things that we rarely sing about. I, I, I do studies through the Psalms every now and again, and I'll come across something, and I'm like, man, we don't have a song like that. Every now and again, you'll see something, you're like, whoa, that's, I don't think, what if I just sung that in corporate worship? I mean, would people freak out? Would it be weird? Would it be uncomfortable? Because they included songs, the, the things that were canonized by Hezekiah, a good king, include specific songs about our greatest failures so as to remind us and others of God's redemption. Imagine songwriters, people blessed by God with, the, with a gift to do that for his glory, sitting and saying, okay, what are some of our greatest failures? We've got to make sure we write a song about it. That, that doesn't always... Uh, sell records, if that's your goal. Um, greatest failures. Even thinking about our greatest failures can be uncomfortable. Well, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the future. But that's what they did in the Psalms. They are so honest about how they failed the Lord, fell away again and again, and worshiped idols. Other songs. Songs to their enemies. I tried to sit and write a song to my enemies one night, and it was, it's a train wreck. I'll, I promise I'll never share it. Um, um, but I was challenged. It's a, they, David and Asaph had songs to their enemies about how they will be crushed if they don't begin to fear the one true God. Um, are we willing to be that honest and confrontational even in our songs? That's the content of the song in the scripture. Um, th those kinds of things are included along with a number of other things. And as part of what was approved and canonized for our corporate worship are songs about writing new songs as God continues to move. So if someone was to say, Word, who do you think you are to, to use something maybe outside of the hymnal? God tells us to write a new song, to bring a new song. So that's why we're still writing and arranging. There's still many songs to be sung about God's infinite greatness. What is still left for us to write is only limited to the infinite greatness that is our great God, which means there's really no limit. God's greatness doesn't limit anybody in anything. Okay, so we have a lot still to write. And another note to consider here, I'm a songwriter. We have songwriters in this body, people who love writing music. A note to consider is that David is far more concerned with people hearing about God than he is about people hearing his song about God. David's far more concerned with people hearing about God than he is with people hearing his song about God. 
One gives balance to the other. And to the degree that you care more about people hearing your song than hearing about God, to that degree, you, your song will undoubtedly be lacking. Look at verses 9 and 10, 1 Chronicles 16. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. I mean, this is the song that's being sung by the people of Israel in this dramatic moment. And our worship and song requires the engagement of the heart and engagement with the heart. The heart changed by God is the heart that is moved to sing to God. And this is what it means to be wholehearted in our worship. It goes beyond just words and includes complete devotion. What this means is that you're, you're singing and you're singing about your entire heart being devoted unto the Lord. And you cannot do that in a halfway manner and expect that your song would actually be true. Like, Lord, you have everything that my life has. And I, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't be looking at your watch in times like that. You can't be having your mind distracted about other things that have your attention. Wholehearted devotion is what the Lord asks of us. So um, here we see that a half-hearted partial devotion is, is, a, is a stench in the Lord's nostrils is what Scripture says. Um, when we sing words, Ecclesiastes 5 talks about our hearts not being far and so when we sing words that are far from our hearts, it's not pleasing unto the Lord. He says, guard, the, the, the counsel he gives us is guard your steps when you come into my presence. Guard your steps. I want you all to think about that as you are walking through those doors on Sunday morning for corporate worship. Guard your steps as you come to the house of the Lord. Are, are you focused enough to be able to really honor, glorify, and please him as you sing? Because something is actually happening there. It's not just symbolic. Look at verses 11 and 12. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Um, first, one way to seek the Lord is to remember his works. What this means is that, I don't know if this has ever happened to y'all, but if you get in like that spiritual funk where um, you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, if that um, doesn't feel like the Lord's close, it feels like he's far you're praying things and you're not seeing what you would hope to see from your prayers. Um, I've had the thought before, it says, well, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working and I'm really praying and there's nothing happening. So I must not be considered a righteous man. What's going on with my prayers? And I just kind of sink lower and lower and you, you, depression's a real thing. I mean, being distracted from the Lord's a real thing. And what this is saying is, when not mindful of what God is doing, you can get there by remembering what God has done. That's, that's what these couple of verses are saying. If, if you're not really mindful of what exactly the Lord's doing or you're unclear as to what the Lord is doing, it's beneficial for the worshiper to just to consider what he's done. And there's no lack of that for us. We can go, we can dig as deep as we want and not plumb the depths of what the Lord has done for his people throughout the generations. We seek him, this says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually, we seek him because we desperately need him to do what he's called us to do. We can't do what he's called us to do without him. So that's why we seek him. And look at verses 13 through 22, because they do just that. What, what just was presented in 11 through 12, 13 through 22 does that. It says this, O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham his sworn promise to Isaac, these were things that had happened generations before in the history of Israel, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob as an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan 
as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number and of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. What we have to remember when we are singing, sometimes uh, like, uh, give us clean hands and the part, oh God of Jacob. Um, our God is the God of Jacob. And our story is the story of a people. You don't just have this necessarily this individualistic story where you're a snowflake and it's unique and other people's stories don't matter as much as yours. Our story is the story of a people and we are called to, to share what the Lord has done. And when you're in a place where you're not sure where the Lord is or what he's doing, um, he says, think of Abraham. Go back there. Go back to Jacob. Think about Joseph. That story is your story because our story is the story of a people. So your story started way before you were born. So when people ask your testimony, I always like, someone's like, share your testimony. I'm like, all right, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, um, and uh, it goes that far back. Um, part of this inaugural song of Israel um, in worshiping the Lord who is present is to include in the song specific things that he has done in the lives of his redeemed people. And a lot of times what, you, what happens when we do that is it reminds us of how far we've been brought. Sometimes we can get so so discontent and so disgruntled with our circumstances as we see them currently that we totally lose sight of how far the Lord has brought us. Uh, I've, this week has been kind of a nostalgic, I don't know, special week as I'm looking at, we came here in 2003 with others to plant this church and 10 years later, I'm just like, the Lord has done so much here. It's not just a matter of reading Psalm 9 and saying, okay, let's do Psalm 9. It's, I cannot begin to contain all that God has done. I've watched him work in people's lives in ways that are amazing. He has redeemed people, saved people. Um, he, he has done things in lives. He has, he has made families different. He's made marriages different. And he has drawn a people to himself. And I look out in our church and I'm like, man, I, I see people who love Jesus. It's not about them. I see people who have been drawn to God by God and they're not afraid to say, yeah, God did this and I love him for it. And because I love him, I want to take a close look at my marriage and my parenting and the way I'm a friend and the way I do work. And so there's all these things that the Lord has done. And when we do this in song and we recount what he's done in the past, it reminds us of how far we've been brought. I mean, that, this part of the psalm particularly says we were sojourners and he rebuked kings on our behalf. That's part of your story. If our story is a story of a people, you were a sojourner and he rebuked kings on your behalf for his glory and for your good. Look at verse 23. This is a big transition verse. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. This is a huge transition and actually extremely innovative, innovative for the time. We're pretty used to hearing songs as a means of salvation. Uh, we'll sing songs that um, are, are, I'm sorry, as a means of evangelism. Whoa. Getting my churchy words mixed up. Reverse a little bit. No song is a means of salvation. Jesus Christ is your only means of salvation. We're used to hearing songs as a means of evangelism, which we hope leads to salvation. I was just jumping ahead there. Um, but evangelism, we're used to singing songs where we tell the goodness of the Lord and we want people to hear it. Go tell it of the nations. Um, um, you said, ask and you will receive whatever you need. Um, and we sing about the goodness of God and, and we sing about creation. We sing about all these things and how he draws in people, how he rebukes kings, how he saves nations, how he saves the people for his his glory. 
And we're kind of used to that, but it was pretty innovative for the time. And this is a song, a, a shift in the song from the nation of Israel singing to and about God to the song being opened, and opened up to all the nations of the earth. The evangelism is not a new idea. I mean, this, this was happening in the first song that was offered in the presence of the ark in the Davidic tabernacle. Evangelism. It was opened up to all the nations of the earth, even Gentile nations. In a sense, what the people were singing, what, as David shares the song of joy, it leads the people, and what they're singing is, there's more room at the table, and we want to invite you to it. It opens up to the nations, and it's beautiful. There's more room at the table, and we want to invite you to join us at it. To join in following the Lord is to join in the song. And then in verse 24, it says this, 24 and 25. This is actually a pretty significant connection to our current sermon series in, of, uh, over awe. 24 says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. That's part of their song. They're saying in their song what is it just has to be true in their life. He is to be held in awe above all other gods. It's a significant connection to the awe sermon series right now. All of God's marvelous works are to be heard among all peoples. Because of God's marvelous works, which are representative of who he is, awe is an important part of our song. When, one of the things we've been talking about in the sermon series is that when you fall out of awe of God, there's really no possible way to sing rightly. If you come in here to corporate worship and gather as a people and you go to sing to the Lord and there's no awe, you, you, when I say awe, what, what do you think I mean? Or what do you think the word means when it says that? What, what does awe trigger in you? Awe. Reverence. What else? That's good. Remembering your place. Amazing, astonishing. Yeah, th those are all really great words that contribute to what awe is. It's this, you're just completely overwhelmed, inundated. There's nothing that has your attention more than your Lord could ever have your attention, and you are in awe. It is a respect, it is a reverence, and it is a worship that stems forth from being able to see him clearly as he is. It's not something you're just trying to muster like, okay, God's good, God's good, God's good, okay, I'm going to sing. It's look at him, know who he is for who he is, understand his character, have a good understanding of Yahweh, and then worship him. And all, all will happen if you will behold the Lord. Awe is not something that can be done for you. And if you do not spend time with the Lord, awe is something that will, it'll, it'll deteriorate, it'll diminish. Other things will grab hold of your attention and they'll become important to you. Whatever is important to you will, will demand your, it'll affect your behavior because you'll do things to get that thing. So if the Lord is, is most important to you, you won't allow everything else in life to crowd out time that you would spend with him. And you won't allow other priorities to trump the priority that he's placed in your life to be his representative and his ambassador in the Lord. So here, uh, Paul Tripp says, um, he talks about this a lot. He says, if you live in the awe of the glory of God, you should want everything to exemplify it. An emotional frenzy is not enough. When we come together for corporate worship, an emotional frenzy is not enough. God has chosen us to be weak because he wants us to retain our sense of awe, and you should want everything to exemplify the glory of God. That should affect your job. Christian people shouldn't be lowering the bar at work. They should be raising the bar at work. We shouldn't be producing mediocre, mediocre, 
That's fitting. That's actually just when you think about what we're talking about, and I say mediocre. Um, we shouldn't be producing mediocre. We shouldn't be producing luster, maybe lackluster, lame, um, um, pansy, sissy, light, fair, um, mediocre. songs or art or anything of that nature. We should be raising the bar. We should be, we should be applying ourselves in such a manner where you work heartily is for the Lord and not for man. We should be applying ourselves in such a manner to where we are wanting to put on display through everything we do, anything we put our hand to, the absolute ultimate glory of the Lord. We want that to be shining through in everything we do, even if it's saying words wrong. Verse 26 says, um, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Part of what we're called to when we, when we sing is to, to call out a fake when we see it. And we call out the fake, the idol, the God wannabe with our song. There should be songs about all these other idols that are screaming for our attention. And we say, no, that, that's fake. That's not real. Um, um, wealth is not a good God. Um, sexual immorality is, is not a good God. Um, work is not a good God. And we should call those out in our songs. That's part of what we do. We call out the, the God wannabe um, with our song. And in verses 27 through 30, it says, um, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. All glory is due to God, and in our song, we're actually taking part in the proclamation of it. When we sing, we're not just symbolizing God's glory. We're taking part in the proclamation of it, and the word that is used here is ascribe. This is to attribute the beauty and the goodness and the glory to God. It's to actually, in your song, you're looking at God and you're saying, all of this blessing would be nothing if you had not made it happen. These things that we have experienced as your people would not have happened if not for you. That's what it means to ascribe to the Lord the glory due to him. Ascribe. And then in verses 31 through 34, it says, this is the next major transition. It says, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The nation is encouraged to praise God. Then all nations are encouraged to praise God. And now creation itself, the cosmos, the heavens, the seas, and the trees are all encouraged to join in the song. This song is a reflection of what God's intentions have been from the beginning, that the entire earth would be filled with his glory. That every voice, every rattling leaf of every tree, every crashing of every wave, every strike of lightning, every roar of thunder would proclaim his steadfast love. Our songs are meant to do this actually, not only represent this symbolically. This song in, does invoke the presence of God. The song does serve as evangelism. The song does use every note and every instrument and every lyric and every arrangement to proclaim the actual truths of God and to stir others up to do the exact same thing. The instrumentation and the voices do reflect the character of our God, and their aim is to affect the soul with this truth. 
I want us to know that, I don't know, it, I spent so many years just focusing on the lyric and just focusing on you know, what is said and not necessarily how it's said that um, I think that it's possible for us to lose sight of the fact that the power of the song can change the people of God. Uh, here's what I mean. I'm not talking about something that is um, manipulative. I'm not talking about a frenzy of emotion. But by God's design, the power of the song that's offered to him rightly can change the people of God if God inhabits the praises of his people. Peter Lightheart notes that um, edification is not the only concern, but even the most beautifully, skillfully performed music is a failure if it ignores the needs of the people. The needs of the people are part of our song. The glory of God is part of our song, but the needs of the people are part of our song. In 2 Kings 3.15, this is a satellite verse for this. You don't have to turn there. Elisha says, bring me a musician. When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. That's completely massive. Is there anything more powerful than the hand of the Lord? And how did it come upon him? Someone played skillfully on an instrument in worship. While it's not mood music, it could be referred to as joy music. It's not mood music, but it could be referred to as joy music. And here's what I mean. We learn in Psalm 22.3 that the Spirit of God actually um, inhabits the praises of his people. And that's similar to what has happened here in this example in 2 Kings. So follow me in this. The Spirit inhabits the praises of the people. And the Spirit doesn't just inhabit our praises so as to take them elsewhere. I used to think that meant, okay, so I praise God, Spirit comes down and gets my praises and takes them to God, and they're pleasing to God. And I actually, I still don't think that's ridiculous. I mean, in part, that does happen. There, that there is a bridge that is, that is made there by the, by the power of the Spirit when, when we're in Jesus, but um, it doesn't just take our praises elsewhere. Um, but the Spirit inhabits our praises to affect the soul and change the heart of the worshiper. The Spirit inhabits our praises to affect the one who's singing those praises. What does the Spirit always do? Brings honor to Him. Let me reword it. What does the Spirit always produce? Truth? Order? Worship? So close to the word I'm looking for. Yeah? The Spirit produces fruit, right? The Spirit produces fruit in the lives of the believers. That's what the Spirit in Galatians it talks about it. And um, the Spirit produces fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So follow me on this. Don't, don't fall off the trail here. This is an important part. The, the Spirit inhabits our praises and produces joy in us. So one way to look at this would be, okay, if the Spirit inhabits the praises to affect the worshiper, we know that one of the goals of the Spirit all the time is that the Spirit produces joy, or the Spirit produces fruit. A fruit of the Spirit is joy. You see what I'm saying here? So it's not mood music, but we could call it joy music because one way to look at it is if you don't feel joyful enough to sing, has that ever happened to anybody? You get here and you're like, I don't feel like singing. I've had a horrible morning. I've been fighting with my kids for two hours and now I'm here praising the Lord. There's sometimes where you don't feel like it, but the, the, by God's design, 
The power of the song can do something to the heart of the worshiper even when you begin worshiping if your heart's not completely in it because the Spirit inhabits the praises of the worshiper. The Spirit's aim is to produce fruit. A fruit of the Spirit is joy. So if you don't feel joyful enough to sing, sing until you're filled with joy. Does that make sense? If you don't feel joyful enough to sing, sing until you are filled with joy. Or to shorten it, if you don't feel like it, sing until you do. If you get here to corporate worship in the morning, you're like, man, I'm not feeling this. Sing until you do. There's a reason that we have worship and song before the sermon and after the sermon. A lot of it before the sermon is this call to worship. We sing songs like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Um, Holy Spirit of God, draw near. You want to welcome here. Come, bless the Lord. Um, all who are thirsty. I mean, we sing all these different songs about coming before the Lord. And a lot of that is, man, if you don't feel like it, that's okay. Sing until you do. The Spirit inhabits your praises for a purpose, to affect you as a worshiper. You can consider the other fruits of the Spirit. And in doing so, remember, it's not just about how you feel, but how you actually are. I'm not talking about feeling joyful. I'm talking about being filled with joy by the fruit of the Spirit. There's a difference there. That's bigger. That's deeper. I want that. Because just as soon as I can convince myself that I'm joyful about something, something bad can happen and I can be distracted. And now I'm in a bad mood and I don't want anyone around me. We're so volatile in our emotions, but God wants to make your emotions more pure, more real, deeper, like to capture them and use them for his glory by the power of the Spirit. So here, the other fruits of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Are you not loving? Are you not peaceful? Are you not self-controlled? Think about all these different things and think, okay, well, the Spirit inhabits praises and aims to produce that fruit. You could say, sing until the Spirit makes it so that you are. This should tell you that your singing is not limited to corporate worship. I hope we're people who go and bring a sacrifice of praise to God while we commute, while we're in our cubicle, while we're out on the field, whatever it is. Do it quietly if you're in your cubicle. People think you're weird. Um, it's okay if they think you're a little weird, but not real weird. Um, <laughs> uh, sing until the Spirit makes it so that you are. So, something the Puritans used to do, um, the Puritans weren't perfect. They have plenty of flaws, just like any of us. But they used to stop in the middle of a sermon if the people were weary or lethargic. And they would bring the song leaders back up and sing until they were ready to engage the word of preaching again. I seriously want to reinstate this thing. I, I would love to do it. It'd be like, if the pastor's like, dude, 10 of y'all are sleeping. Worship team, come on, let's do this. And we're going to sing until we're ready. You're not feeling it? Sing until you do. That's what the Puritans used to do in the middle of a sermon. And that's actually where we're going to close. Um, as important as the song is, and as real as the change is that takes place in a song, it's absolutely secondary to the preached word. Ben and I had a huge argument about this in my first year at Crosspoint because he was the preacher and I was the worship guy. He was like, that's not as important as, I, as the preaching. And I was like, hey, self-serving guy, what are you talking about? This is more important. And, and both of us were, were um, we have a tendency to be a little hard-headed and we would butt heads now and again, uh, a little bit headstrong and stubborn. And, uh, and man, I was, ready to, I was ready to say, no, 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 that's not more important. What we're doing is equally important, and it's good. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm a worship leader. I led worship for the better part of a decade before I ever taught or preached anything. And I can say without a doubt, according to the scriptures, um, 
as awesome as song is, as wonderful as song is, as you see the Spirit inhabiting the praises of His people and changing people in song, it is absolutely secondary to the preached word. Absolutely. Don't tell Ben I told him he was right on that first year, but it's absolutely secondary. Um, Without the preached word, there's actually no possible way for us to be equipped for the work of ministry that does take place through worship and song. And so, um, we have to make sure our things are in order when we come to corporate worship. That's a lot of what we're studying in First and Second Chronicles. Are things in the right order? God actually cares about order and, uh, and about the details and how we put them in place and the disciplines that we show in carrying them out. And so um, we're actually going to end um, by singing because it's really appropriate. So uh, I'm going to pray. Y'all come on back up here, and we'll, uh, we'll actually close in song. And when the song is done, uh, we'll be dismissed. But let's go ahead and stand, and we'll pray. Lord, I'm thankful that... Um, that song isn't just limited to what we can do with it. I'm thankful that music wasn't our idea, but that you, in your infinite wisdom, made it so that we would have a season that tutors us on what it means to sacrifice and what it means to come before you and worship. Lord, I'm thankful that we can look back and know that there were years and years and years and even generations of people that lived and died and there was no worship in song but they were worshipers and they came before you in wholehearted worship. And now we can sing. As we we sing, we bring the sacrifice of praise, Lord. I I pray that you would really be honored by a people who are wholehearted. Um, I pray that we would guard our steps as we come near. I pray that the words that come out of our mouth would not be far from our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we would be very mindful of the fact that the Spirit inhabits the praises of his people and that we as worshipers can be changed as we sing, so, so that we might glorify you more in our lives and put on display your glory and tell others about the knowledge of Yahweh uh, in a number of different ways, whether it be through just sharing it with them, whether it be through other you know, more common forms of evangelism, whether it be through the song that we sing, whether it be just the way we treat someone and the actions that we take and the, uh, the spirit that we do it with. Uh, Lord, we are eager for this earth to be filled with your glory. Uh, we want to be in line with your call and your purposes. We love you and we thank you for our time tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name.